0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering mm-hmm. the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm
1: doing great. The weather's kind of better, and it's a lot of fun to be here recording with you.
0: Yeah, man. Yesterday, we were able to receive a... I think in my Gospel Library app, it just called it a message of hope. Did you get a chance to uh, catch any of this yesterday? I did, yes. Yeah. Most of it. There's a lot of feelings about it. At least I've seen in my social media feeds because of the hashtag give thanks. And I was just curious if you had any uh, initial thoughts to share about either the message or the social media campaign, anything in that vein.
1: Well, he's definitely right that gratitude can help reframe so much of what's going on in individuals' lives or in the life of a community or Mm -hmm. nation. Mm Mm-hmm. There's just something about putting yourself in the spot of thinking about what you're grateful for that will remind you of stuff that you didn't even think of. And then that it's not artificial that oh now you're grateful for stuff that doesn't isn't true, but you dig deeper and say, "Well, what am I grateful for?" and you'll su- be surprised at all the things you find. Mm-hmm. And I think this is coming out on social media and I think that's overall a positive for people's
0: well-being. Definitely. Like, personally, the message was very well-timed for me. I've been getting a lot of not-so-subtle messages the last month or so that I need to work on uh, this very thing, to work on gratitude. More than one occasion, I felt prompted to spend time cultivating a greater attitude of gratitude, especially in times of grief. And not to say that there's not a time for grief, There's, there's a time to feel your feelings, but, like, again, just speaking for me, I know that I'm prone to lose lessons in the midst of that sulking in favor of indulging self-pity and feelings of resignation. I fear, personally, that I might carry around this uh, uh, this heaviness that might suck the life out of people, you know, and that, that's no good. Now, I, I notice this particularly in my journaling. I'm a very diligent journaler. And the journaling app that I use does this thing where it reminds you that, you, hey, this time last year, you wrote an entry. Do you want to have a look at it and see what you wrote about last year? And I'd be like, well, yes, I do. I want to see what I wrote about this time last year. And then I would open up that journal entry, and then I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm complaining about the same things this time last year that I'm complaining about now. Wow. And further, further, I realized that my journal had been an outlet for me to do a lot of complaining. And I don't really like that about myself, how how much time I spend. Like journaling is also my primary meditation and prayer exercise. Journaling helps me focus my thoughts. It helps me keep things organized. And I'll realize that I spend a lot more time complaining about things than expressing gratitude for the blessings that I do have. And I have a lot to be grateful for. You know what I'm saying? So lately, I've just been trying to be more conscious of being more grateful rather than complaining of uh, recognizing that it's a lot healthier and that, as President Nelson said in his message yesterday, it can help me keep an eternal perspective that will allow me to not just think more positively, to be more cliche, but also have an attitude where I'm able to expect better things, an attitude where I'm able to carry more of the spirit with me, and an attitude where I'm able to genuinely appreciate more of what the Lord has done for me more than complain about the things that I don't have. Does that make sense? Right. All right, cool. So I just feel like one of the lessons for me, especially with this lesson coming out was learning to have healthy levels of gratitude held in tension with the grief and the sadness. Cause you know, the big thing that weighs me down is obviously the state of race relations in this country. Mm-hmm. I feel a lot of, uh, I don't want to say hopelessness, but, like, sometimes it feels that way. And I feel a lot of grief and sadness over that stuff. And, you know, I want to be able to hold that grief and hold that intention with feelings of gratitude for what I can do, for what, you know, you and I are able to do, for having the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives as our primary tool of writing these issues. You know what I'm saying? You say it often, Derek, that everything that's wrong with the church, or sorry, everything that's right with the church can fix everything that is wrong with the church. And I don't spend enough time focusing on that. I spend a lot of time focusing on what's wrong to the point where I forget that very beautiful and poetic truth that you shared.
1: Two things. One is, I'm struck by the difference in response when President Oaks said very clearly that Black Lives Matter (laughs) last... I'm so glad that you're saying this right now. The only people I saw on social media make a big deal out of President Oaks' thing is people who've already been saying Black Lives Matter all along. Or people that are mad about it. Oh. You know? Oh, yeah. Okay. But I mean, anyone who's like encouraging and supporting and amplifying President Oakes' message... It it wasn't anyone who wasn't already saying it. But with the give thanks thing, all these people came out of the woodwork that I haven't heard from in years and years and all they they came up on my Facebook feed. I'm like, oh, I haven't heard from you in a long time. And all these people came out with the give thanks hashtag. Why didn't people come out with the Black Lives Matter hashtag who hadn't done it before? Because people are doing it just because President Nelson told them to, Mm -hmm. right? And you had this blossoming of um i mean it's i shouldn't say it's artificial because i think there's a genuineness behind it but going back to that the second piece that i would like to say is i have a lot of experience i have more experience outside the church than i have inside and so i have a little bit of insight as to what things look like and how things are perceived and how things are felt if you don't do this campaign right it will look like a commercial for the church Mm And I, th- I really think when you, when we people engage in these social media campaigns, they should do it for the benefit of the person who's seeing it. Someone outside of the church should be uplifted and supported and, and gain something from it. It shouldn't be, oh, I'm doing this to advertise my faith or right. I'm doing this to signal that I'm doing what the prophet said or, right. or any of that stuff. Right. And I think it really depends on the intent of the individual poster and what they choose to be grateful for. If they choose to be grateful for like, you know, I'm going to be exalted with my wife and kids and you're not, that's not. (laughs) That's
0: kind of the big, that's the other thing about this campaign that really got me. Like a lot of the things that people chose to be grateful for, not not to say that you can't be grateful for your family, for your spouse, for your job or for your health. I'm just saying that especially now you know you you really got to mind your audience you know there's so many people that aren't able to enjoy those things there are people that are not healthy people that are not financially stable people that have not been able to have a family or who have not been able to meet somebody to make their spouse you know what i'm saying like it's Mm -hmm. just it it feels a little i i don't know what the word i'm looking for is but i'm i'm just thinking to myself that if we're going to publicly give thanks for certain things I, I want it to be how you just said, less a commercial for the church, less a kind of me brag and more of something yeah. that is going to, you know, uplift other people and encourage them to also express gratitude or to have gratitude in ways that they're not going to be repelled.
1: Exactly. And that's what I meant by saying a lot of people aren't conscious the way I am about how it's going to ha- sound from the outside. Yeah. People being thankful i'm wondering have i did i see anyone thankful for what they've learned from lgbt folks did i see anyone thankful for what they've learned from people of color or from women mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i th- I think people were mostly thankful for the ideal mormon dream piece yes like yeah. thankful for my family my job my and it's all these jobs that are like lawyers and accountants and other things that i'm like how are you going to use that in the eternities <laughs> right but um yeah and and I don't want to say that the, their thanksgiving isn't genuine because it is but they need to figure out how it's going to be heard by people from the outside and where are they really putting if they're putting on anything that's valuable to them on something that's contingent and worldly like my your job like that could go away your family Mm -hmm. could die especially during COVID. like i don't want to be pessimistic about it but if you're putting your thanks in something that could go away that's going to change your idea it's going to crash and we'll talk about crash theory later Mm -hmm. but that's just what i want to say about this campaign
0: there's a lot of people out there who are embracing this give thanks hashtag who could not be bothered to talk about racism and that I don't know if there's some kind of connection to be drawn there between the people that I've seen suspiciously quiet about these issues that the prophets have been speaking about, but are now suddenly very vocal about giving thanks and have no problem participating in that.
1: Yeah. And the irony is even in that same talk, so you know people listen to the whole talk, they listen to the give thanks part and they also heard where he mentioned racism, just a very the briefest mention very of racism. Brief mention, yeah. But why they picked out one and not the other is kind of telling. And I do
0: want to make space for acknowledging that some folks haven't responded all that positively to the campaign. Also understandable. You know, a lot of people have been expressing disgust at what feels like a very performative compliance. As much as I support this message of having gratitude, I feel like too often messages of gratitude, especially at tough times like this, can come across as appeals to toxic positivity. And there's a fine line And President Nelson even said as much as he introduced his message last night. There is a there's a time to grieve and we are going to experience hard times and it's okay to mourn those. That has to be lifted up as we talk about an attitude of gratitude. This message, I don't believe, was an appeal to toxic positivity, though people will certainly weaponize it as such. And I wanna make sure that's named as we move forward in these conversations on gratitude to not encourage people to not feel their feelings or to not encourage people to not feel their grief. There's room to hold this tension of grief and sorrow as well as gratitude. The last thing I wanna say is we we, we can use this Give Thanks hashtag. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't have to use this hashtag the way other people are using it. We can express gratitude right, for right, the lessons exactly. that we learn from LGBTQs, like you said. We can use this to express gratitude for people of color. We can use this hashtag to express gratitude for things and people and organizations that are doing the work that, you know, we're doing. Express gratitude, especially for the people who are choosing to stay in this faith and continuing to do this work of... Uh, centering marginalized people of making sure that they're affirmed i'm very grateful for the people doing this work that we're doing i'm very grateful for the people who have joined our community and are empowering others to do this work like that is that is something i'm extremely grateful for and i would hope that people who have taken issue with the way this campaign is being used i hope we can kind of judo this into something that is more productive
1: yeah, so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Then before we move on to the come follow me, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So this week, we are in Ether chapter 12 through 15. We are finishing off the book of Ether and basically what's going to amount to the destruction of the Jaredite people. Derek, is there any uh, context you want to give to these verses before we jump in?
1: Just a reminder of what I said last time is you've got some layers in the tradition. You've got Moroni's sources here. And then there's also his interpolated processing of it where he inserts his own thoughts. And I think keeping those a little bit separated helps you figure out exactly what Moroni's doing. Like, why is he taking the choices that he does? And we'll get into this later when I talk about Moroni's work here as an option three exercise. And I'll explain what that is later.
0: All right, cool. Crash theory coming. Crash theory coming. I'm excited. Anyway, there's really only two things I want to talk about, and they're both in chapter 12. I did not make it out of chapter 12 in terms of my... You know, little exercise and exegesis, like I know how this story ends and it's fine and everything. And there are some definitely some other things worth considering in the later verses. But just for the sake of time, I'm going to focus the things that I've noticed and the things that have hit me hardest in chapter 12. The first one was a faith that causes things to happen that we started learning about in uh, verse four, going down to about verse 22 or so. And you know, Derek, I love a good anaphora. Like, uh, I love Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, speeches because he often employs this literary device, and I simply love using it as a means of making a point. Several verses, starting in verse nine, begin with the phrase, either by faith, or it was the faith, to drive home the point that faith doesn't simply precede Mm -hmm, miracles but actually causes uh, miracles. We've already seen moments of this throughout the Book of Ether, especially with the brother of Jared. We saw him demonstrate a faith that was so powerful that he was able to cause miracles because he fully expected them, which I just think is amazing. In fact, one of the biggest lessons that I got from my mission, and i wouldn't so much call it a regret but if i could go back and do my mission again i wouldn't just pray for miracles i would fully expect them and mm. that's the that's kind of the way i want to live my life now that is that is one of the biggest lessons of gratitude i've actually been learning is that the people that i know who are the most grateful they are the kind of people who expect miracles and i wanted to
1: and i've spent a long time trying to cultivate that in myself but Ooh, anyway. i wanted to say something to that oh yeah absolutely I don't know where I heard this story or if it's true, but there's a story of this small town in the middle of the Great Plains, somewhere that the farming community was suffering terribly because of a drought. And this pious faith community went to the one church in the small town and said, we're gonna get the whole town together and have a prayer service where we implore God to send rain. So they, the whole town came out for this prayer service and one little girl brought an umbrella. Hmm. I'm like, she's the only one that brought the umbrella. So I think that's the kind of faith that the brother of Jared had. Yeah, that's really cool. That is really cool.
0: I wanted to highlight the brother of Jared there. And he's actually one of the examples that Ether gives as he talks about all the miracles preceded and caused by the faith that he's talking about. I don't remember if this is in Preach My Gospel or where it is, but this uh, Boyd K. Packer quote kept coming uh, to my mind where he talked about the two different kinds of faith. There's the kind of faith that breeds uh, confidence in events that are like almost on a schedule, like the rising of the sun, knowing that the floor is going to be there when you get out of bed, knowing that the seasons are going to change. That kind of faith that kind of operates and is bred from a confidence on a schedule. But then he also talked about a kind of faith that causes things that otherwise wouldn't be. And he didn't spend too much time talking about it except mentioning that this is a kind of faith that we should cultivate. Because that is the kind of faith that is present all throughout this book of Ether. That is the kind of faith that is present all throughout scriptures. And I couldn't help but think of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech when uh, he talked about what we can do with this faith. He employs the same literary device. He discusses the same topic, and he talks about the same principle of faith preceding and causing miracles. Uh, This paragraph that he says, I'm just going to quote it directly here. He says, With this faith we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope with this faith we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood with this faith we will be able to work together to pray together to struggle together to go to jail together to stand up for freedom together knowing that we will be free one day this language of hope and living as if we know we are going to experience freedom is a reflection of something that we see in verse four that hope cometh of faith maketh an anchor to the souls of men which would make them sure and steadfast always abounding in good works being led to glorify god close quote king spoke and he lived as if the future that hadn't yet arrived would come to pass and he'd do it again in his mountaintop speech this is near the end of the talk this is the end of the talk he says well i don't know what will happen now We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything and I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I don't know if you remember this from uh several months ago at the black lds legacy conference but uh brother Ahmed corbett actually talked about this kind of faith and he compared it to uh nephi and lehi he pointed out the similarities between dr king's statements and scriptures from the book of mormon such as first uh, nephi five and that's the part where soriah complains against lehi about their situation and about their sons not having come back to Uh, their camp yet and them likely experiencing certain doom and then lehi states it had come to pass that my father spake unto her saying i know that i'm a visionary man for if i had not seen the things of god in a vision i should not have known the goodness of god but had tarried at jerusalem and had perished with my brethren behold i have obtained past tense a land of promise in the which things i do rejoice yea and i know that the lord will deliver my sons out of the hands of laban and bring them down again unto us in the wilderness now remind you at this point in the story lehi's family is still somewhere in the arabian peninsula still wait making their way towards the seashore and it's still going to be several more years that they spend in the wilderness until they arrive at the promised land Yet, Lehi is speaking as if he has already obtained it. Exactly. Much in the same way that Dr. King proclaims that he has been to the mountaintop, that he has seen the promised land and that he's seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That is the kind of faith we want to have, the kind of faith where what we are seeking has already come to pass and causes us to live in that manner, causes us to have the kind of faith that allows us to develop a hope, the kind of hope that comes of faith that makes an anchor to the souls. This is the kind of hope that Lehi had. This is the kind of hope that Dr. King had. It's the kind of faith that drove the civil rights movement, the kind of faith that blessed those who possessed uh, this faith with the assurance of a better future, so much so that they felt they've already obtained it and acted like it. That is so cool. That is so profound. It's It's the kind of faith that the black pioneers had who stayed within the church even though they couldn't yet partake of all the blessings of the membership of the church. I will never forget. I don't know which film or documentary it's in, but there's this part where Darius Gray is being interviewed and being told several years before before the priesthood ban was restricted that he was going to one day hold the priesthood. And that he was going to experience the fullness of the gospel and that he was to join because that is where the fullness of the gospel was even though that he was even though that at present he was being denied personhood like that is a profound faith to me that you can live into the reality of promises that don't yet exist. Now, I know you've talked about this before, Derek, where you've talked about how you know that things are going to be different in the future, and that informs very much how you live today. I've, I've already talked a lot, but I just wanted to see if you had any feelings about that kind of faith and how it informs the way you live into both your faith and your activism.
1: Well, it's foundational to my approach. Mm-hmm. I think you said it as as well as I've ever said it, that that the full equality of LGBT folks in the church isn't my goal, it's my starting place. And there's gonna be more work to do after that. But I start from the premise that I know that my f- heavenly parents didn't send me this, to this planet only to forget about me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's There's something special there that I, I don't know if I was gay in the pre I probably, oh, oh, I was gay in the pre gay. I was gay in the pre-existence, right? (laughs) And so I came to this place. I must have known that there was room for me in the plan of salvation or I wouldn't have accepted it. I Mm -hmm. accepted it then. I'm accepting it now. And there's room. A lot of straight people don't know where the room is, but that's their problem. That is their problem, I mean, they try to make it my problem, but I don't let that get inside me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm already living as though I'm fully accepted, and, and there's no one really that can say anything that can discourage me at this point. Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
0: So, like, yeah, man, this is, uh, this is the kind of faith the Lord wants us to have, the kind of faith that allows us to live into realities that are not yet seen, which are nonetheless going to come to pass. I think that's the definition of faith in uh, Ether chapter six, actually. I probably should have quoted this too but I'm going to do so now because you know, it's a powerful, it is a powerful verse and it worth, and it's worth repeating in this context. Ether chapter 12, verse six, faith is the things which are hoped for and not seen. We are living in something that is not yet seen, which is nonetheless true. The affirmation of our humanity in spite of a society that might tell us otherwise. And I really love how, that is highlighted in these verses and how that is echoed in the civil rights movements how that was echoed in other moments in uh, the book of mormon and in the bible so uh yeah i think that's all the that's all i wanted to draw attention to maybe i might have more to say afterwards do you have anything about uh about these particular verses you want to share
1: so i was thinking about as you were talking there's a lot of resonances with hebrews chapter 6 and hebrews chapter 11 dude Okay, I'm so glad you said this. I was going to talk about Hebrews chapter 6. Okay. And so you've got this same concept of faith really profoundly and deeply honored in Hebrews chapter 11. One of the presentations I gave a while back was about Hebrews 11 and the faith of the marginalized. Mm. And it's really cool because if you read carefully through all of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, none of them are praised for their institutional participation or their centralized Mm -hmm. uh, power. Mm -hmm. Even when they are prophets or leaders, they're praised for something that puts them on the margins and Mm -hmm. alienates from their own people and their own generation. Yes, sir. And so the author of Hebrews retells the Israelite story from the perspective of the marginalized in fact women are mentioned four times in hebrews chapter 11 you've got sarah the mother of moses and um rahab and then the women who received back their dead by resurrection those are all listed um in hebrews 11 as heroes of faith mm. and this gets back into something i'm going to talk about for a while in terms of crash theory oh yes i've been waiting yes for this. Crash, crash theory, theory time so I'm going to give you a summary. Everyone should, if you haven't already done so, even if you have, go do it again. Go to YouTube, search for 123 Crash Navigating Inevitable Change, B'nai Lappi. And that's B-E-N-A-Y-L-A-P-P-E. We'll put a link in the notes. And there's, so Rabbi B'nai Lappi is an amazing teacher. She's taught me in person. I loved learning from her. So here's a brief outline of Crash Theory. She says that every religious tradition comes into reality for one purpose, to answer these big questions. And these questions are answered with a master story, a grand meta-narrative. And inevitably, these master stories crash. They come up against reality and no longer answer these big questions in a satisfying way anymore. And these will all crash, there can be big crashes, there can be little crashes, piece of the master story can crash. What she wants to do is critically interrogate what happens when that crash happens. And she says there are three and only three options. Option one is you deny the crash and you build a little wall around your master story and pretend that nothing can damage it and nothing has changed and and you just remain inflexibly planted into your master story and refuse to accommodate in any way to accepting the crash, option two is to accept the reality of the crash, but then think, Oh, this completely trashes and disproves my master story. I'm going to throw out the baby with the bathwater and get rid of my master story and jump off into a new master story from some other place. Option three is a little bit outside of the box thinking, it ends up acknowledging the crash and holding it in tension with the master story and keeping them both in fact what you do is you retell the master story in light of the crash all of the things you've learned through that crash experience get folded back into the way you retell the master story you end up figuring out what parts of the master story work and what one which ones no longer work in light of the crash and that is what you take with you so let's go back and talk about whether we can make a case for Moroni engaging in option 3 thinking well throughout his his works so we've got a few chapters in mormon we've got the bulk of ether is his is framed by his narrative and then the book of moroni so we have all of these works and i'm trying to make the case that he engages in option 3 thinking any initial thoughts or questions i thought immediately
0: about lgbtq christian activism and how we read the Bible specifically. Most Christians understood passages such as Ephesians chapter six, five through nine, and Colossians three, twenty two through twenty-five to sanction. Slavery. Some... Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. I know those texts. Of course you know those texts.
0: Derek, what what text don't you know? But like but Christian abolitionists were able to persuade believers to take another look they appealed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to conscience based on the destructive consequences of slavery that's an example of a story not working based on a narrative right. that was already constructed bad tree produces bad fruit and then there's also less consequential at least as in terms of a uh, humanness is concerned uh things like people believing that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun revolved around it it was a common sense observation mm-hmm. And the Bible seemed to affirm it in in Joshua 10, I guess. Okay, Joshua 10. The sun stops in the sky or something like that, right? That's the scripture? Yes. Okay. Since humans are central to God's creative and redemptive work, it stood to reason that we were the literal center of the universe too. Now, Christians did not change their minds about the solar system because they lost respect for Christian forebears. They Mm -hmm. changed their minds because they were confronted with evidence their predecessors had never actually considered and it gave them a new lens to a more accurate interpretation of those verses on slavery or on those verses on this on the solar system the telescope in other words didn't lead christians to reject scripture It, it clarified their understanding of it and that's what i feel like option three is is holding that intention so i really like this idea especially in light of what ether is experiencing You know, in watching his people be destroyed, the fact that he's able to consider things that give him hope and consider things around faith as all this happens. You know, I think option three is a is a very plausible thing because, you know, if either can do it, if we are doing it now, there's no reason the people in the past didn't do it. Like Peter had to do it twice. Right. You know, (laughs) literal leaders of the church have had to do it. We did it in 1978 and we're gonna do it again in the future Mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. we are forced to look at scripture in a way that affirms LGBTQ folks. So I I like this idea of option three because there's precedence for it. I mean, not to say that there's not precedence for the other options, There's, you know, but the best case scenario and when miracles happen and when progress is made is when we're able to
1: embrace option three. And I suspect that both option one and option two are very comfortable in yes, the sense they're that they're comfortable. They're easy. It's easy to not have to think about stuff. You can just take your inflexible thinking and refuse to adjust any of your preconceptions or assumptions. You either take the whole thing and throw it out or you take the whole thing and keep it and do not the, really think either You don't crew. have to do as much work. I imagine that when there's a crash, 99 Rabbi Benay Lappi he didn't say this, but I really think that when there's a crash, ninety-nine percent of people go either option one or option two, which are the, which is really the same thinking that your master's story can never change, mm-hmm. or that you that it's all or nothing, mm-hmm. and you have to either keep it all or throw it all out. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. option one and option two thinking. Option three thinking is very very rare, but it is produces the most brilliant theological thinkers in our scriptural records. Yeah. And in fact, her case is that the rabbis of the Talmud were responding to the crash, the literal crash of the fall of the second temple. And like, what do we do as Jews? Like our whole technology for access to God, the temple and sacrifice no longer exists. And they reconstructed Judaism around the synagogue and prayer and study and the keeping of the laws that they could still keep. And this tweak saved judaism from going the way of whatever happened to the babylonians or the hittites or all these other ancient peoples who we don't even have anymore but let me get back to my case around moroni because i don't even have to say that he experienced a crash Mm -hmm. right but i want to say he experienced multiple crashes not just the devastation of the genocide of his people which is big enough yeah yeah but he also had a very personal loss with his father, and that affected him in his writing. And despite all of his loss, he still kept writing, which I think is evidence of option three. But kept writing, and that about things yeah. like faith, hope, and charity. Exactly. Like exactly. what the heck, Maronna? He did not give up. He did not go option two. Another crash that he faced was the imperfections in the scriptural record. Okay. He had all the scriptures before him, including his father's writings, and noticed weaknesses in and imperfections throughout them. They didn't do exactly what they were supposed to do in terms of bringing people to repentance or saying exactly right what needed to be said, and he noticed that. So that's another crash, the disappointment with with the scriptural record. And another example of that in specific is the difference in editorial approach between his father Mormon and his own writings. When you look at Mormon, he has all these very carefully constructed uh, intricate narratives that he specifies certain moral lessons. He he carefully lays out the historical evidence and then says, and thus we see, Mm -hmm. and then draws a conclusion from it. That's Mormon's approach, is to bring forth the historical evidence and show and tell and see and demonstrate. One of the clearest differences between Mormon and Moroni is their usage of the word see. So Mormon's all about, and thus we see, you've got all this documentation. Moroni says, actually, that doesn't work for me, and it doesn't work for my audience. We can't talk about seeing the same way, because you have to have faith in what you can't see. And I'm not going to give you any historical evidence. I'm just going to tell you in Ether 12 that you've got it to have faith before you get to see anything Mm. and your faith isn't based on the seeing it's based on something else and you'll get this again in moroni chapter 10 with the whole promise he doesn't give you faith based on historical evidence he says you just gotta ask in faith and you'll get and you'll get a confirmation with no with no evidence that's external so if you see for him his father's approach wasn't successful or it didn't do what he wanted it to do. So he had to abandon that hope of using historical evidence and then rely on a different model. And so mm-hmm. you can see he's he's sort of tweaking the tradition he received. This is really option three thinking. Now, how do I know that it's option three thinking? Well, it can't be option one or two because option one in the, the light of all these crashes would have been to deny the crash. Mm-hmm. Moroni clearly accepts the crash. Yeah. Option one thinking would have been said, God, please, 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 I want to keep my civilization going. Just make me a wife out of one of my ribs and start a new nation with me. He could have said that if he refused to admit the crash. He could have also said, God, please, let me just convert a whole bunch of Lamanites and restart. Like He could have done any desperate amount to keep his story going, but he didn't. The other thing he didn't do was option two. Option two would be to just give up and say, whoops, this whole devastation proves that my tradition was wrong. You know, God didn't have our back. God isn't there. Maybe God doesn't even exist. And he would have abandoned faith, abandoned his and rejected his master story completely. He didn't do that. He didn't run off and join the Lamanites. He accepted the crash and then retold the story of his people in light of the crash and we really get that in the ether narrative and that may have been a catalyst for some of how he processed and was able to get into some option three thinking i really think rabbi lappy didn't spell this out but option three thinking might not be available to everyone at the same time it depends on what you've encountered one you one prerequisite is the crash if you don't have anything that challenges you to rethink anything you're not going to rethink anything mm-hmm. a crash helps us wake up two you need access to alternative lenses if you don't have any other frame for looking at something other than the mm-hmm. black and white mm-hmm. all or nothing nothing your stories can't change there's no nuance you're going to end up with either option one or two yeah but having access to alternative lenses can help you realize that option 3 is an option i think that's the biggest misconception about option 3 is that it's not even an option people on the side of one or two say well no you can't do op- you can't go option 3 you have to pick you have to pick one of one or two but when you when moroni had to trans had to transmit and process the book of ether he found something there he found something that helped him process the crash of his civilization in light of the crash of the jaredites and he found a faith that transcends seeing he found ways of navigating the goodness of god despite all appearance and that's that's really option three and let's get into some of the details around option three thinking i didn't even get to the third prerequisite a third prerequisite for option three thinking is a complete mastery of the tradition he had all the records, he knew them thoroughly. You can tell by the way he alludes to first and second Nephi, how he alludes to other materials, that he thoroughly has absorbed this tradition. If you don't have that foundation, it's going to be very hard for you to retell your tradition in a faithful and sensible and resilient way. So he mm-hmm. had all those things very well. He had the crash, He had these alternative lenses and he also had a mastery of the tradition. And in spite of all the loss he faced, he still kept writing. Let me look at some of the specifics in the text about what I would call some of these, um, option three, thinking. So yeah, let's look at what he says about faith and seeing. One of the best examples is when he appeals to the brother of Jared, seeing before he sees, right? Having faith before he sees. But one of the the really cool things is he sandwiches his big discourse on faith and hope and charity with marked expressions of the weakness of the scriptural tradition. If you look at Ether twelve, verses twenty three through twenty five, and then verse forty, he sandwiches all this discussion in the context of admitting the frailties of the scriptural tradition, including his own. By the way, scripture is just a word that means writings. Okay. Mm-hmm and he says look at verse 25 he actually promotes and sets up a nuanced approach to the scriptures in a way that will accommodate some of the challenges he says when we write we behold our weakness and stumble because of the placing of our words and i fear lest the gentiles shall mock at our words and that's exactly option 2 thinking if you mock the scriptures if you if you don't take a nuanced and sensitive approach to the scriptures, you'll reject them. Or if you don't take a nuanced approach, you'll accept them completely and thoughtlessly and fundamentalistically. And he says, don't do either one. He wrestled with the scriptures and said, look, there's weakness, there's imperfections. You have to keep going through that. And I think this is so true with the proclamation on the family. A lot of people want to say all of it's perfect or all of it's trash. But the reality is, is a lot more hard work Mm. because of the weakness of the placing of the words. And some of the wording in the proclamation on the family is not going to endure the eternal test of time. It just won't, right? It doesn't even endure a couple of decades, you know? But do we throw out the whole tradition or do we accept the whole tradition? Like... That's the thing that Moroni is cautioning us not to do. He has this really, really profound and advanced option three thinking by saying, look, you've got to admit the weakness, which Mm. some people don't do. And he said, you've got to keep the strengths without throwing it out, which some people won't want to do that.
0: Mm. It's a brilliant observation. I love that. Like, Mm -hmm. I've known that about the family proclamation, but like, yeah, I really like that you can apply this uh, crash theory to it. And that ether, Mm -hmm. like in Moroni, so profoundly display the fact that you know this is going to be an issue for people like the fact this is one of the few places where the imperfection of you know prophets and the imperfections of the writings of the scriptures are gone into in this kind of detail and really one of the few spots where we can appreciate the nuance and why nuance is important as we as we study the scriptures this is one of the few places we actually get to see a prophet wrestling with that
1: yeah and i think this whole ether 12 discourse was occasioned by the account of ether not being believed or or trusted by the people of his generation ether exhausted himself in preaching and exhorting to people and people didn't believe him and that's what occasioned moroni to have this masterpiece of scripture here in in ether chapter 12 and if you go into chapter 13 just a little bit in verse 12 I didn't even get to talk about what the story was that crashed. The story for Moroni was the continuation of the Nephite people and transmitting the records and keeping this going. And instead of finding a desperate way of keeping it going or abandoning it, he passes the baton to the latter day Gentiles, which is a very option three move. He says, look, I'm just going to tell the story a little bit differently. It's going to continue in this way. And we maybe didn't expect that it's going to go this way. But I have faith that the latter-day gentiles will receive the book of mormon and will continue this tradition and that's where i'm tweaking the tradition is is saying there's room for it to to go a completely different way than a lot of the nephites would have anticipated and you see this very profoundly in verse 12 of chapter 13. there are they who were first who shall be last and there are they who were last Who shall be first and this talks about the interplay between well does the gospel go to the gentiles first or the the jews and then later on it will be it will come to the gentiles first in the latter days in the restoration and that's this all this folding together is his way of making sense of the tradition and my whole point in saying look at how option three thinking this is is to say we can do the same thing If we master our Mm. tradition, if we have alternative frames and lenses, and if we acknowledge the crash, we can do the same thing. And a lot of LGBT people will face a crash in the church. Like the narrative we hold from birth. Well, I, I didn't, right? But those who are raised in the church get this narrative from birth that will not work. It will crash. And what do you do with that crash is the choice that queer people face. And that's actually the choice that everyone faces. Like, I don't want to say it's just about queer people. I think queer people are lucky that we can't avoid the crash. We have to do something with it. There's so many people in the church that don't have the, well, privilege is kind of a, an ironic word, but don't have the privilege of being forced to deal with these things. And I think about this in terms of percentage of fitting in. I don't fit in the church. I don't. I'm okay with that. I probably fit in 50%. You know, I have faith. I have membership. I have activity. I really am passionate about the tradition, but I don't fit in. I don't have a wife and kids. I don't have this grand job as a dentist, lawyer, accountant, or, or businessman. I don't fit in. I didn't serve a mission. I didn't get married in the temple. I'm not even sealed to my parents. I don't fit in. And the blessing is I don't have to, and I know That since I'm not going to fit in, I'm not even going to try to make up that 50%. But what about the people who fit in 95%? You would think, oh, they're better off, but I think they're worse off. It is better to fit in the church 50% than 95% because if you fit in 95%, you're going to exhaust yourself trying to make up that other five. Have I ever told you this before? I don't think so. But I think that is so true, and I think women especially get subjected to this pressure of this is exactly what you're supposed to look like, even physically look like as a woman in the church, like mm-hmm. how you do your hair, how you dress, yeah. how you yeah. dress your kids, how many kids you have, whether you stay at home, whether you XYZ, like how you carry yourself, how you smile, like all of these things, you've got this great, great pressure to conform, and the closer you are to almost being there probably the the greater pressure there is. And this ties into crash theory because not fitting in, that's a crash. Mm -hmm. And what do you do with that? Do you try to make up that 5%? Do you try to go option one? Or do you say, well, I can't fit in, so I'm just gonna dump this all out the window um, and leave the tradition. Now, I'm not exactly condemning people who for their own safety have to leave the tradition. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of LGBT folks have to do that and Mm -hmm. that's what they have to do I can't prescribe option three as being exactly the right thing for everyone at all times in part because it's not accessible to everyone in the same way and it's also not safe Mm -hmm. there's a risk in going option three and I've chosen to go option three Moroni chose to go option three Christianity itself almost every document in the New Testament is involved in some option three thinking because what they inherited from the Hebrew Bible had to be tweaked in light of the Messiah, especially in the light of a crucified Messiah. No one was expecting a crucified Messiah. If there's any crash, it's the guy you thought was gonna save you gets crucified and eliminated by the Romans, that disproves any mess- messianic claimant. Quite a crash. And the, another crash, of course, was the fall of the Second Temple, which influenced Christianity as well, because now you have to reconstruct what Christianity is in light of the no longer being a sect of second temple Judaism. There's just so many things up in the air and they had to process like, including the Gentiles. That was a real big crash because the workability of a, of, of a Jewish only church crashed. And like, there's a lot of crashes that c- called for creative and really profound ingenuity in their thinking, to think outside the... But Paul really... Lo- a lot of people don't like Paul because of what he said about slaves, women, and, L- and apparently LGBT people, the way some people read it. I can't really tell people to get over that. So I'm not going to. But I can say, I have to take an option three approach with Paul. Some things I'm going to retain and some things I'm not. And that's option three thinking that I have to do with Paul because... I benefit from some of the creative thinking like the way he included the Gentiles was amazing Mm -hmm. the way he retold the tradition and said hey let's go back and and retell the tradition and look at Abraham and say things like oh you know what he was saved before he was circumcised he was Mm -hmm. saved before while he was still quote a Gentile like and that opened up a really backwards in a good way way of including the Gentiles and saying it's He's justified by faith and included by faith and not by circumcision or the works of the law. I'm like, that is a really cool way of digging deep into the tradition to do something that the tradition otherwise couldn't have done. And I love the best of option three thinking, and I want to encourage people to know that it's an option. You don't have to take option three, but I want people to know it so they don't feel forced into option one or two. Even if they choose option one or two, I want it to be deliberate. I want to say, yeah, I know there's option three, but I am have the empowerment to choose option one or two or three. Mm-hmm. And we all have more power and healthier approaches if we know that option three exists, even if you don't take it.
0: I only have one thing else that I would like to share. You know, I feel more than free to contribute whatever feelings you have on this. But I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about a verse that we quote often in Mormonism because it's a Scripture Mastery Scripture. It's uh, Ether 1227. I feel like a lot of us might gloss over what's being said here because we hear it so often. It's a, Like I said, it's a Scripture Mastery and probably one of the go-to Scriptures about weaknesses with a powerful teaching and promise that the Lord will make, quote, weak things become strong. And I've heard prophets and apostles quote this verse a lot. I think Uchtdorf has the highest count right now. But I want to talk about what this looks like because I feel like what it looks like for weak things to become strong because I feel like that's a part we don't often include in our conversations about this passage. So I just want to say first that this wisdom about the Lord making weak things strong, it's not that novel considering... uh, you know other verses that say something very similar in the New Testament. Uh, you talked about Hebrews earlier. Um, you know you talked about Hebrews six and eleven. I want to talk about Hebrews four, where the Lord says, "Well, there's a promise basically that we will be able to find grace to help in time of need." And then we read in verse in Philippians four thirteen, "I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me." Both of these are promises very similar to Nephi's observation that the Lord will prepare a way for us that we may be able to accomplish the things that he commands us. The theme in all of these scriptures is that whatever lack exists in us, the Lord can fill it if we come to him and name that need. During the Lord's mortal ministry, there was probably no better example of this than the feeding of the 5,000. Just in the book of Ether, we we saw the brother of Jared do something similar when he came to the Lord with some clear rocks and was like, "Hey, uh, I got these clear rocks. Can you make them shine?" In both of those cases, some mortal being lacked something, and then the Lord more than made up the difference, which is a really cool thing I, I want to highlight. Like the mm. lessons of these stories mean a lot to me because I'm still learning it, even in this moment, Derek. I come to this I, I come to this show every week with what I feel like is. Two fishes and five loaves. Wow. I'm still learning this lesson, even in this moment, that my best is good enough. And I feel like that's one of the most critical lessons of these verses, and one of the most critical lessons of the feeding of the 5,000, of the Lord touching the stones, of pretty much any miracle that Jesus did. He gave something to people that they could not do themselves or give to themselves. Regardless of our frailties and our weaknesses, I know that if you rely on the grace of God as is written in these scriptures, whatever you have to offer is enough. It's more than enough, actually. Like all throughout the scriptures, the Lord has demonstrated as much. Our God saw Gideon. This dude was a broke farmer Mm. and he called him a mighty man of valor. That's so encouraging. He saw Saul as a choice young man. Saul was like, you know, I'm not fit to be king. Samuel saw him as a king and then The Lord called him a choice young man. I just got done writing an essay for my grad school applications where I compare Moses to the Black Panther. The same Moses who was like, I'm not good at talking. I'm not popular. People aren't going to like me. And the same Moses who literally asked for death because he was so overwhelmed and discouraged. He wanted God to kill him. This is the first guy to say, God, kill me now because I was so overwhelmed and so discouraged. That Moses, God extended and added on to him. Like that is so that is so profound to me that you can be so overwhelmed and so discouraged by your own inadequacies that you want to die but the lord still magnifies you the lord is magnified and multiplied the most vulnerable and those with seemingly the least to offer and sometimes that seems to be where he does his best work just to go back to moses again The brother of Jared was able to construct some barges. Noah was able to build a boat. Nephi was able to build a boat. When Moses got to a body of water, he ain't have no boat. (laughs) Moses ain't have a boat. But because he didn't have a boat, because he had so little to work with, we have one of the most famous, notable miracles in all of the Hebrew Bible, the parting of the Red Sea. You know, that is so cool. The Lord can do that for us. We can show up to a huge body of water without anything to even build a boat with we can have we we can get to that conclusion or get to that place and the lord will part the sea for us if we but turn to him if we are humble and if we name our need and our lack the lord will make up the difference i feel like that is one of the primary lessons of the atonement is that the lord can make up the difference and also a primary lesson of uh this particular passage
1: that if we come to the lord with our lack he will make up the difference and that reminds me, There, one of the things is there's the dispute as to whether the church should change around LGBT folks, but then there's the other dispute as to whether they can, and some people don't even think they can change, mm-hmm. especially faithful members like, nope, this is fixed, this can never change, mm-hmm. and they, their logic is we're too much backed into a corner, that <laughs> there's been such a great precedent that that can't be overturned, and, mm-hmm. and we're we're painted into a corner, there's no possible way it could change. Is there any more painted into a corner than being on the shore of the Red Sea? <laughs> I'm so glad you said if that. You can, if God can part the Red Sea, he can definitely fix the Absolutely. The, 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 pay, the fact that we're painted into a corner. Like Absolutely. there's gonna be some path that may not be visible to people. And this is exactly what Mariah is saying is you've gotta have faith. You, you mm-hmm. may not see the path through the Red Sea. You may not see a way out of yep. this corner. And a lot yep. of... Folks, either cis, straight, or LGBTQ, may not see a path for viable change in the church. Mm -hmm. They're assuming that there's just no way they can change and without losing legitimacy or without whatever. Of course there's a way. I mean, if you believe in God, there's a way. Mm -hmm. And God is leading this church. I have no doubts about that and will lead it through, but we have to wrestle with the weaknesses of our tradition. And that's why I love he talks about these weaknesses here. Mm -hmm. At the end of verse 27, it says, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. I think that's the best in in option three thinking. It's you take the weak things and you don't just throw them away and you don't pretend that they're not weak. You let them grow into something that's stronger and more resilient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 12, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, when I'm weak, I am made strong. And what's the middle term there is that when I'm weak, I rely on Christ. Mm -hmm. And when I rely on Christ, then I'm strong. And that's the profound message that Paul and and Moroni have here. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you for saying that, because I really did want to bring that out. We've said many times on this show, the God we worship does impossible things. The God we worship parts Red Seas. God we exactly. worship chooses broke farmers, exactly. as mighty men. and mm. you know, the exactly. God we worship calls Saul a choice young mm-hmm. man. Like we got so like again, the yep. margins, these poor people, these hungry people, these broke folks, God F- does his both exactly. He does his best work among them. His best work. In the civil mm-hmm. rights movement, just to call back to that, uh, the biggest catalyst of the civil rights mo- uh, movement was a black woman refusing to give up her seat to a white man. Yeah, And, you know, considering the status of black women in society at that point and and now, you know, I'll say the fact that a black woman was the center of the biggest catalyst of the civil rights movement lets us know that God really does do some of his best work in the margins. If the church doesn't have a place to affirm you, the Lord can certainly help you create something that will. The Black LDS Legacy Committee, for example, was born out of this desire. This podcast was born out Mm of that. mm -hmm. Bottom line is that the Lord can help other people and can add on to other people, can magnify other people, and can multiply other people's loaves and fishes to something that will be miraculous.
1: Yeah, and that gets back to something, I don't think I've said it this way before about Ether 12, but but Ether 12 reminds us that one of the big problems in the church today is that we don't let our prophets be human. Mm Mm-hmm. We don't let our prophets make mistakes. We don't let our prophets be wrong. We have to, culturally, we have to say them, that they're perfect. I mean, like, doctrinally, we don't actually say that, but people in practice act as though they're perfect in all of their wording, in all of their actions, all their policies, all their decisions, Mm -hmm. and that will cause you to crash. That will crash. That narrative will crash. It will crash in some way or another. That's gonna crash because we won't let our prophets be human. And this is exactly what, e- what Ether 12 is telling us. Moroni is saying, look, we've got weaknesses. You need to accept the weaknesses, but don't let them distract you from what it is that God has to say through us. And I think that's a good way of tying it back to President Nelson's message this week. He had some profound thoughts and maybe he didn't phrase everything fully or completely or in a way that really impacts everyone the way it could have, but we we realize that God works with those weaknesses. If God can work through a 14-year-old uneducated farm boy, then he can work through any of us. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the lesson that I learn about looking for option three thinking in the scriptures. All right. I think that's a
0: good note to end on. Uh, Before we wrap up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, A Journal of Mormon Thought is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so that you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's
1: dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, when, where can people find us? You can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com, and we're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Yes, sir. Any events we got coming up other than the Day of Remembrance? Do we know if no. that will be streamed yet? I think at least parts of it will be streamed the National Day of Morning event in Plymouth.
0: All right, cool. I just want to remind you guys that we got the Glow page still going on, where if you are willing and able, you can throw some coins our way in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. If you contribute anything, you get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook group, where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback and ideas for the show, access our notes, and a lot more. If you got not coins to throw at us, you can just share our Glow page on your socials and you can still join our collaborator community. We've been having some conversations about merch on there. Also been trying to figure out who else we're going to have on the show to like have an interview or a topical discussion with. A lot of folks during COVID, y'all, y'all are a lot busier than I thought. So, you know, <laughs> if y'all know anybody who you know might have something to contribute to our discussions that we have on this show, please let us know. And also thank you to the new collaborators this week. Uh, Some of y'all have not added your name to your email addresses, but I'm going to find y'all in the Facebook group this week. And so I can name you next week. But thank you guys who have contributed to our uh, campaign this week. Really appreciate it. I also want to give a special thanks to our friends, Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, Eden Wynn as well for handling our social media. All y'all are rock stars and we couldn't do this work or grow the way that we're growing without y'all. Really appreciate it. Anything else that we got to put out there, Derek? I think that's it. Awesome. Then thank you guys for listening till we meet again next week.
1: Till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.